Blog Talk Radio. Margie, and we're going to be talking tonight about the processed gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are God, that you are in control of all things. And Lord God, we're praying that your will will be done even on earth here as it is in heaven, and that you will bring us into a deeper revelation and knowledge of your will through your word, and that you'll give us an understanding of how precious it is the Word of God. And we ask tonight that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear at a deeper level, that we will get an understanding through the Holy Spirit of what is uh, what, are, what are these perilous times, Lord God, that we're living in, that you'll instruct us in righteousness through your Word, through your Holy Spirit. Father, we take authority over the enemy who would try to mess up the technical connections and the instruments of war that we're using through the airwaves to bring this message of encouragement and hope and instruction to your people. I pray for them tonight, Lord God, that you lift and encourage people's hearts and minds, Lord God, as they listen on their way to wherever. Father, that you'd inspire them and stir them up, and Lord, make Holy Spirit connect the dots so that people will get this and they'll understand what kind of oppression, what kind of war, what kind of battle we're really in, and help us all, Lord God, to make sense of it. And I thank you, Lord God, and declare your word back to you that no weapon formed against us will prosper, that no word said, no deed done, no action taken will be able to be used by the enemy to bring forth any shame, trouble, or reproach. Father God, we ask these things now because you are the faithful witness and you said you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. You who continue in my words, you are my disciple. You said if you continue in my words, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, Lord, as we continue in your word tonight, guide and instruct us. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we invite you, first of all, to join us tonight in the discussion of the processed gospel, or another title could be be called the peanut butter and jelly gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's kind of that repackaged, um, uh, processed gospel, Word of God, the holy inspired word of the Almighty God that's been kind of rewritten, regurgitated, uh, redone in many different translations and versions and throughout uh, the more recent history. It seems like um, we were able to do just fine from 1611 until about mm, 1982 with the version we had. And then all of a sudden we decided we needed all kinds of versions to of the Bible to... Uh, help us understand the Word of God. Um, I don't know what happened. I think the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit, and the Word of God is the same Word. But we, uh, that, I believe, this excessive amount of versions and varieties and packages and, and commentaries and all this is just really simply another trick that the enemy has set before us to, to obscure the real Word of God and, and become, make it become cumbersome, burdensome, and now we have another question to, to resolve. Well, what's the right version? What's the right translation? Uh, which one is the genuine and, and whatnot? So tonight we're going to be talking about some of those uh, thoughts, and um, I'm sure you have thoughts as well. So if you'd like to join us, you may call us at 347-215-8051. And uh, so let's begin and see where this will go. Um, you know, I've been thinking about, I'm getting ready for a conference called Troubled Children, and we're talking about all the processed foods and the imitation foods and the counterfeit uh, nutrition and the ways the enemy has corrupted our soils, our food supplies through GMOs and pesticides and all under the guise of making things more convenient and more understandable, more accessible, and really what he's really doing is killing us. And I kind of believe, kind of, that's a, a parallel to the, exactly what is being done with the Word of God, which is our, our, the food for our souls. Um, and I often 
say to people, you know, I pray that you'll have a hunger for the Word of God, that you'll eat it like food. And yet many of us, I, I think, are eating watered-down versions or, um, you know, uh, light reading, maybe a devotional here or there. Um, and we're just not really getting the impact of the power of the the arguments, the um, uh, the uh, giving of the understanding of what God had and intended, the whole weight and um, story and uh, uh, depth of this whole war that goes on. And, and so many of the versions just muddy things up. It's just like I can't even hardly read them. As a matter of fact, I really don't read them because I just feel like they're just not helping me. Um, some people have a preference, and I'm sure the most important version of the Bible, when all is said and done, is the one that you are obeying. And so that's the most uh, important thing, is that whatever the Lord has shown you, you obey it. But let's go back and look a little bit at what happened in um, six, well, or even before we got the King James Version, um, the, the started out in the year probably 300, 350, something like that of the scholars getting together um, to form the first translations of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And that is called the Septuagint. And uh, 72 scholars uh, put all those, uh, translated the Hebrew into Greek. And so, of course, the Hebrew is Hebrew, and that's kind of the eternal text that the Old Testament was written in. And um, it pretty much does not change. Greek does not change. In 2,000 years, I think the English language has probably changed 400 times. Uh, but the Greek language pretty much is very consistent. And, and uh, of course, that's what you need when you're, when you're stabilizing a concept and writing it in stone, so to speak, so that it doesn't become watered down and um, uh, diluted with other people's thoughts or, you know, cultures or uh, interpretations or whatnot. So, in the beginning, they had the Septuagint, and then later, uh, St. Jerome uh, based, he, he translated, um, he standardized the text, and he, he translated that Hebrew into Latin. It's called the Latin Vulgate. So a lot of our original, uh, uh, the King James uh, and those various early versions were based on those two original texts. So today, we have at least 50 English versions. That doesn't count any other language in the world. But we have 50 versions that have everything from uh, different covers, different different translations, uh, paraphrases, and whatnot. And I think the most important thing is to have a, a standard. Not that everybody can't read a different Bible, but that you have a standard like the King James or the New King James that is your basis that you go back to when you're looking at something from the Message Bible, which, by the way, is the MSG version. And if you look at MSG in our food supply, that is what is an excitotoxin that brings uh, seizures to your brain. Um, and I'm sure that the MSG Bible uh, does the same for our soul. It's not stable. It's a man's paraphrase. I think his name is Eugene um, Peterson or something like that. Let me check and see if I have that even written down. I want to get to the good stuff. But, you know, people are under the influence and inspired, and they think that they're, they're, um, they're trying to make it simpler when, in fact, it is the Holy Spirit who has to decode it from beginning to end anyway. Because the Bible is written like a, uh, a treasure map or like a code. And, you know, people you know, we've heard of people who memorize the Bible, and they're just plain old wicked I mean, so memorizing the Bible um, surely does not give you an understanding of the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit who has to open up the meaning and give you an understanding of what you're reading. Um, so um, these 50 translations or versions uh, that have appeared like in the last, uh, let's see, 40, 50 years have really filled our Bible bookshelves and our Bible bookstores with thousands of choices. And I, I really believe, you know, it becomes almost um, like, where do I start? What's the Bible for me? And and, and so people become a, a bit intimidated by that. And I don't know if there really is a legitimate need for so many versions. Um, 
And by the way, what is a paraphrase? A paraphrase is a rephrasing. It's not a word-for-word. It's not a thought-for-thought interpretation or translation. It is a paraphrase. It's rewording it, um, just like when you write a book. You read a book, and then you write a book report. You write the book report to reflect what you thought you read uh, in the book, which means it could be or it might not be what was really in the book. So there are basically two ways the translations are done, a translation, now not a paraphrase, and one is the word for word, uh, and that is called a formal equivalence. That's when they actually take the words and, you know, word for word, formal equivalence, and that really minimizes the translator's bias. Back in the day um, when King James uh, actually Back in, I think it was 1607, he finally got the throne. Um, Queen Elizabeth had finally died. That was his cousin. And um, he was a very poor king, a Scottish king, and she was, of course, the Queen of England. And when she died, he became the heir to her throne. So it was like overnight he had this wealth and this dream come true, and he was the, you know, King of England. And so one of the things that had been going on back and forth, back and forth in England um, through the reign of the kings was the the battle between the Catholic Church and the the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church was the king's church, and and King Henry VIII, of course, wanted to divorce several of his wives. And of course, being the Catholic Church would not permit that. He had to form his own version of the Catholic Church called the Anglican Church. And so back and forth between England and Scotland, and all those nations around, there was there was a battle, a political battle between is it the Catholic Church that's the right, the one true church, or is it a more freestyle? And so, actually, when when uh, King James um, called together his scholars, and he did a pretty good job of it, actually, these scholars met. There was, I think, seventy of them. They met in in groups of six or something like that, and they were given certain sections of the Bible. And they translated those sections, and then when they brought them all together, um, and they, after they took them out of committee and brought them together, they had to listen to the reading of the text, the the, the way it had been written. Uh, there was no papers in front of them, no Hebrew words. It was just simply they had to listen and listen for the flow and the context and and the content to see if it was. Uh, um, would flow and was in agreement with itself. And I think that's a really powerful way of testifying that there's 72 men who put their minds into this, scholars from every, and, and of all kinds of uh, sorts. But they came up with a very um, stable, solid, and I think accurate interpretation of the, the text word for word. Now, the second way people uh, can do a translation is through a thought for thought and that's called a dramatic equivalence. Now, a thought-for-thought thought gives you much more of a the writer, the scholar's bias, um, and, you know, they're kind of like a self-appointed interpreter of God's thoughts, possibly, and, of course, that isn't always as stable or accurate. Um, one of the things to know about the Bible, the Bible will always agree with itself, it may look like a paradox, and there may be passages that seem actually paradoxical, like, um, uh, for example, you know, turn the other cheek, uh, go the second mile, and then put that up against, um, shake the dust off your feet and don't even eat with them. Those scriptures seem to be paradoxical or, or oppositional, um, and there doesn't seem to be a nice, clear line between, you know, what to do, where this stops and this starts. And the Bible is like that because. In that particular case, it's not. Uh, there's no boundary. There's no uh, balance to the Bible. It's all integrated. And in that particular case, it's a question of what time is it? Is it time to turn the other cheek? Is it time to shake the dust off? And a lot of times, people don't realize that there's a, um, uh, a, a you know, a, a, the in, the integration and the context and the flow of the Bible is one. It's one complete whole, and God does not. Um, disagree with himself so to speak so we have the um we have some newer versions that are man-made and in those versions uh, a lot is left open to discussion i think one of the the newer, the newer trends among not only the the bible versions but among the churches themselves is the 
the sense of the emergent truth, where truth is now uh, debatable, discussable. We'll have our little group and we'll sit around on our couches and we'll sip our, you know, cappuccinos and we'll talk about what truth is. Um, we'll define it according to what we, uh, without, according to our definitions, it's not defined according to the word or the fact that Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. It's defined according to um, an opinion or a ism or a position on a political issue or whatever. And so truth becomes no longer absolute and when something is no longer absolute, it can no longer be the standard um, for anything, uh, the standard for judgment, the standard for uh, righteousness. Uh, for example, if, if you change, if everybody uses their own version of their tape measure uh, when they're building a house or their yardstick, and they all build on the same house, but they all have different opinions of how long a foot should be or an inch, that house is going to come together in a very crooked, uh, obtuse way, and it's not going to uh, uh, be in agreement with itself. It's, it's, a, it's a mess. It's chaos. And so it's very important. A couple of the things that have really undermined the Scripture throughout the generations is the simply the, um, is it the inerrant Word of God? Is it infallible? Or are there errors in it? And some of the denominations um, in some of the versions I, 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 that, that those denominations prefer give them a more open-ended opportunity to um, uh, reassess these particular scriptures or this or that and uh, make it all more relevant um, to our society. And in, in, the, in doing that, we lose the, the sacred standard of God, his, uh, his um, holiness, his truth, his... Uh, um, you know, just his his uh, wisdom, his, who he is, the, the who God is, is undermined because the word of God is the will of God. The word of God is the demonstration of God, the giving of his um, his instructions to us through his prophets. And isn't it interesting that the prophets that God chose to um, to write his word were over the course of, you know, thousands of years. We have uh, Job, we have Noah. Over the course of thousands of years, between between them and um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and yet you see that there's such a progression of truth that's in harmony with itself, and that these men from different cultures, different times, didn't know each other. Some learned, some not. They were all giving us the same revelation of the Holy Spirit, uh, the prophetic word, the prophet, the prophecies themselves, and. Obviously, many of those prophecies are there to um, uh, confirm, uh, establish the credibility of the Word of God. And even now, archaeology confirms and establishes the credibility of the Word of God because a lot of the things that the Word says, um, there was this body of water, there was this mountain, there was this uh, journey through the wilderness, there was this uh, altar, there was this split rock where the water came out. They're finding these things now. And... um, it, again, it just reconfirms the awesome truth and stability of God's word. And so we, we look at the word and uh, the, it's like I said, it's like a treasure map uh, with hidden truths. And it's only decoded by the Holy Spirit. And so as we sit to read the word, you know, sometimes I think people are afraid to read the word. They think uh, it's just going to con- condemn me. It's just going to judge me. Um, I'm bad already and I know it. I don't need God breathing down my neck, telling me um, I feel guilty when I read it. I feel guilty when I don't read it. I sit down to read it and I begin to fall asleep. I think all of these things um, are true indications that there is a lot of spiritual battle around the Word of God. I mean, if you are sitting down to read your favorite magazine, your hobby, your craft, your your hot rod magazine, whatever it is, you know, home builders, Mother Earth, whatever, you're not really going to fall asleep. I mean, you just, you you don't get that groggy, you know, distant, foggy feeling. You're able to concentrate. And so the word of God is the enemy does not want us to receive the word that that is able, the engrafted word of God that is able to save our souls and, and encourage us. So let's look at the word and see what kind of a Bible you're reading. Um, Now, First of all, is it meant to be difficult? 
Um, no, I don't believe it is because Jesus, when he was here, he knew his words were going to be recorded. And isn't that interesting? He never wrote any of them down himself, but he committed those words to his illiterate and unlearned followers, fishermen, you know, apostles, disciples. They wrote them down, but the stories and the parables were not to the um, the, 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 the the Bible scholars, but to the common folk. And they did understand them, those those stories and parables that brought heavenly meaning, spiritual understanding to the people were available to their understanding. They were common. They weren't, they weren't um, uh, you know, sophisticated where people would have to, um, you know, have a college degree in order to know what Jesus was talking about. He was there for the common people. It was his intention that people would understand clearly what was going on. So when we look at the, the few versions that I think most people have heard about um the newer versions, translations, if you will, have been copyrighted. And I think that's kind of interesting because when you copyright something, it's for the purpose of protecting someone's property uh, and preserve and keep it or prevent it from, you know, being illegally copied. Isn't it something that we're, we're making money profit off of what God gave freely to be the property of all? And I know some of them are public domain uh, because they're out there and they've been out there for a long, long time. But it's kind of unnerving that we have to copyright. Well, what are we copywriting? God has freely given us his word. So why are we trying to make money? Because we're tra- changing it into our words or our opinions or our um, uh, discussions. And, you know, that's that's another problem. The word of God becomes the carrier for so many of those um, uh, little texts underneath the uh, the, the the enemy is trying to get us to you know either be a Calvinist or a whatever and, and so you're reading the biases or the interpretations of important passages um, uh, in your study Bibles especially that really are not necessarily inspired or anointed. They're one man's interpretation or one person or one team or whatever, and so we get hung up because we desire to understand. I think the best way to read the words, if you don't understand it, is say, Holy Spirit, I don't get this. Tell me, what, what does this mean? Um, and, you know, I found that to be very helpful. And I really, he does. He shows me what he's meaning, what he's saying, what, how this works with that. And, uh, you know, just, wow, it's just like your mind is clear and it makes sense. So, um, again, the, the King James came to us in about 1611. Um, we had the new King James in 1982, and basically, um, I know every revision has got changes, and some of them are uh, we can live with. Some of them are simply l- l- uh, terms, language, words that have you know we don't use those words anymore, or they've got a different meaning now. Like for example, the word "gay" has a different meaning now than then, so we don't we, you know the words are changing to fit what we understand, but. The um, the uh, the the new king the NIV came in 1978, um, and then they revised that one in 1996. So it's like wasn't that good enough? The New Living Translation or the, is is a, a living paraphrase. Uh, there's then there's the MSG Bible, which the Message Bible is short for the Message Bible, and again uh, I do not recommend the Message Bible. It's I, I ju- it just doesn't make sense to me. It, it, it doesn't give you any sound doctrine. It really feels like it's trying to um, give you a sense of compassion, empathy, feeling, but not really directing you uh, on solid ground as to what God is really saying. Um, so the question becomes uh, really simply, um, you know, which of these versions, what is your motivation for reading the word, you know? Um, some people read the Bible to learn, um, to learn God's will, um, to know God's will. And I think that's awesome. Um, and some people maybe just read it to, um, prove that they're right. A lot of people, you know, um, even in the preaching of the word, it's, it's more uh, on topics. You know, you pick a topic and then you find all the scriptures that support that topic. Well, the Bible is, is a, a, a sharp two-edged sword, that pierces even to the dividing of bone and marrow, thought and intention, soul and spirit, which means don't argue the Bible, the Bible with the Bible because um, it's, it's not going to, you know, for every scripture you give, 
the enemy can bring back another scripture. Uh, he is very intellectual, very uh, very quick, very skilled at this kind of a sword fight. Uh, the Bible says, avoid vain disputes and genealogies. Don't, you know, really the Bible is more powerfully lived out than argued out. It's already, it doesn't need to be argued. It stands for itself. It stands for the truth. Um, I got to share with you, um, you know, the corruptions that are in the church, whether it's in our translations or in our theologies or in our, um, our, uh, the way we present the word or how we act it out or work it out is nothing new. Um, this corruption, contamination of the holy things of God being mixed and mingled with the, with the wickedness of the world is not new. In Second Kings, there's an interesting story and, uh, about the king whose name was Josiah. Now, Josiah came, uh, actually, <laughs> what, he had a pretty stormy history. He was, um, his grandmother tried to kill him. His uh, sister, I mean, his, uh, his, his aunt tried to save him. This child, infant, when his mother was going berserk, killing all the people, the prophets of God and whatnot, so she could rule, um, Josiah was hidden for eight years until he was eight years old. He was hidden for six years in the actual temple. They hid him from his grandma so she would not kill him. And then when he was um, eight years old, uh, they they uh, installed him as king. And he had a very godly um, counselor who actually helped rule the kingdom until he was of age. But when Josiah was in his 18th year, as king, um, they found in the temple, they called, they found the book of the law. And um, also he had went back to the temple to see how the repairs were coming on the temple, which the money had been brought in many years before that. But the priests and the, the those who were supposed to fix the temple were pilfering the money, and not, none of the repairs had been made. So the, the table, temple was broken down um, the money had been misused, misappropriated. And then when Hilkiah found the book of the law and read it to Josiah. Now, here you have years of corruption. You'll see what got, had infested in the temple, in the, uh, the worship of God over the years before Josiah came. So you can see that God has put up with a lot and he's upset with um, uh, the people for what they had brought into the temple. So... Um, so what did he do? He took out, the king commanded Hilkiah and the high priest um, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for the Baals, for the Ashtaroth, and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes to Bethel. So inside of the Holy of Holies, the temple, there were idols, uh, there were um, temp- uh, articles made to honor and represent and mingle the 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 god satan actually that's the word for satan the baals the astros the goddesses of heaven and all the hosts of heaven he burned them then he removed the idolatrous priests that burned incense on the high places of the cities around jerusalem uh, that burned incense to the demons to the sun to the moon to the constellations and to the hosts of heaven now remember these are the people this is all being mixed and mingled together with the worship of God. Then he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron and burnt it and ground its ashes and threw the ashes on the graves of the common people. This wooden idol right there, smack dab in the middle of the temple of God. Unbelievable. How is it that they let this wooden idol stand there for years and years, this um, and Ashtaroth, she's a Canaan, Canaanite goddess. So they had went into the land of Canaan. They'd cleared it out a little bit, but they, uh, they incorporated, adopted, embraced the gods, uh, the mythology, the witchcraft of these people and put it right in their temple. He, dor- he, tore, he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings of, for the wooden image. Perverted people, temple prostitutes, uh, ransacking the holy things of God, weaving hangings for a, a wooden 
image, a stick, a stone. Uh, and no wonder God is about to get mad. And he um, brought all the priests from the high places that defiled the high places uh, where they burned incense. Uh, he broke down the high places. Notice there's many times where the Lord refers to the high places, and those are the places outside of Jerusalem where people had set up worship to their gods, and um, that is still being done today. Don't think it isn't. Um, then he defiled Tophet, and this is where the valley of the son of Hinnom, this is where the people would, Manasseh offered his own son. Manasseh was a king. It was his, probably his great-grandfather. Offered his own son on an altar to a god, to a demon to um, to sacrifice him through the fire, passing through the fire to Moloch. This valley was filled with this kind of human sacrifice, child sacrifices. Then he removed the horse, the horses. Now get this, we're still on the same Josiah cleaning the temple. So he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord uh, in the chamber of Nathan Melech and burned the chariots of the sun with fire. So you have sun gods, you have human sacrifices, uh, you have high places, you have wooden idols. The altars that were on the roof and the upper chambers of Ahaz, the king um, and the kings of Judah, the altars that were to Manasseh had made again um, in the courts were broken down and pulverized and their dust was thrown into the brook. Then the king defiled the high places that were in the east of Jerusalem where on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for the Ash, for Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Sidonians. Ashtaroth, again, the goddess of the Canaanites. Um, for Chemoth, the abomination of the, of the Moabites. And for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. So Solomon had built um, booths and, and places of worship for these various pagan gods. How much of this do you suppose is going on in our churches today? And and even in the word, don't you think that if they were so bold and blatant as to corrupt the very holy of holies, the temple of God, back in the day, that they're, they're, that the enemy has stopped, is not doing that anymore, that he wouldn't think of corrupting our churches, our devotionals, our Bibles? Oh, heavens, I believe this is this is not the half of it. He broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and filled their places with the bones of men. Now, the reason he did that is because that then defiles and makes them no longer sacred because um, they, the Jewish people were not permitted to even walk on the graves. That's why Jesus called, they, they had the white, the whited sepulchers. They painted them white. They whitewashed the tombs so that people would not accidentally walk on the bones of the dead people because that would defile them just like picking up a dead body. So they're externally they're being so perfect and so clean and so careful, and internally they're just full of vipers and a brood of vipers and snare of a den of thieves. Um, so then he broke down and he burned the high places and crushed with powder and them with powder and burned the wooden images, and then he took away all the shrines in the high places that were in the cities of Samaria. Think about the churches that we reverence today, all their shrines, their sacred places, their pilgrimages, their icons, their their incense, their pop and circumstance, their rituals. Um, we're not just talking one particular church. We all have that. If you look at your church today, you go in there, this building that you go into, that is the building called the church, but we are also called the church, the body of Christ. But a lot of the trappings in that church, including the vestments, the liturgies, the the pronouncements, the tapestries, the candles, even the banners, the flags, the weather, all that stuff is, you know, just our own ideas of what it should look like. Um, those are the shrines of the people of the city of Samaria. He executed all the priests of the high places that were on the altar and burned men's bones on them, and he returned to Jerusalem. And then, after all that cleansing and that getting rid of cutting off, burning, pulverizing, he then called the people, commanded the people to keep the, the feast of the Passover. So you see, the, the feast of the Passover was where the people um, came back into covenant with God. It says, moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law that were written in the book, 
of the law that the priest had found in the house of the Lord. Notice mixing psychics, uh, they're consulting psychics, mediums, horoscopes, fortune tellers. Um, you know, we, what do we do? I mean, you say, oh, well, it's just a little innocent this, it's just a fun that, it's a, um, you know, but we we permit it in our in our children's movies. In our we we don't address these issues, and they just pile up. They just accumulate. They get left unaddressed. And this is the corruption of not only the um, the word of God, but our minds and our hearts. So it is the word of God, as we see with Hezek- with Josiah. It is the word of God that was used as the standard, going back to the true true north, the true measure of who God is and what he wants. And there was no, um, you know, this is my idea. This is my idea. Let's fight over. Let's, let's, you know what, let's compromise. Let's, let's cut the truth in half and you can have it the way you want it. And I'll have it what I, what I want and tolerance and all this. It's that, that is not going to fly. It's not going to work in the kingdom of God. So again, we see, um, this is nothing new, but it is something that is serious. Um, we need to know that God is is in control, and yet we have some responsibility. So if you're just looking for a peanut butter and jelly version of the Bible or gospel and and throw out the real meat of the word, there's going to be weakness, there's going to be inflammation, there's going to be infections and sicknesses. Um, A lot of us are very uh, drawn to the emotional, um, not only the... uh, the feel-good feelings, the smiling prophets, those who say you can live your best life now. Um, I understand everybody has a different um, part to play or a piece to to declare in the in the kingdom of God. But we need to understand there is a war going on, and that is through that's woven throughout the whole context from from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. The war does not go away. The spiritual warfare, and and again with the the devil's very first uh, question that he placed before Eve that seduced her into sinning was the question, has God said? Bringing doubt. Did God really say? Did God really mean what he said? No, God didn't really mean it. You're not really going to die. So the the whole word of God, notice when, when the devil tempted Jesus, he, in, you know, used the word to try to get Jesus to uh, jump down off the pinnacle of the temple, attempt to commit suicide, put God to the test, and, and prove that God loved him by God rescuing, rescuing him because the word says, according to the, and this is true, that, the, that God will give his angels charge over you lest you dash your foot against the stone. But that was taken out of context. And it was taken presumptuously in order to um, tempt Jesus to uh, put God to the test. And Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In other words, yeah, God is going to give us protections. And he does, believe you me, he does. But I am not going to put God to the test and push him into a place where he has to do something that is contrary to his nature to keep his word to me. That is called manipulation. That is called um, treachery. That is not honest. And so, and then Jesus would answer the devil many times by saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. So the thing is, what is the version? How powerful is the version that you are reading? Are you able through the version that you're reading to be built up um, in, 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 are you being strengthened? Are you brought to a place of hope? Um, or are we looking for a version that will give us an excuse, soften the meaning, uh, give us a, a, a way to cover ourselves um, uh, and sympathize with, with our, uh, with our lethargy or with our, um, you know, having a form of godliness and denying the power thereof. Um, Jesus said something very shocking to the Pharisees in John 5, 39. If you want to turn there, we can look at it for a minute. He says, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life, but they are that which speaks of me. You know, And so he was saying, you are looking through the scriptures, but you're not getting it. You're not even understanding even close to what is going on here. Um, so you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So what were they doing? They were searching the scriptures in a a fictitious, 
uh, phony way, not really serious about looking for life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know who you are and you have not the love of God in you. The scriptures of God are given to us to produce the love of God and to bring us to the truth, the revelation, the light of God's truth, not to give us uh, some opportunities to look holy. I think we have many um, groups now that are trying to look like the genuine. You know, we have our, our groups and our worship teams and our music groups and our Jesus culture and our CDs and all of the things, but what are they doing? Are they really bringing us to a a, a, a passion for Jesus Christ, uh, a, a, a compassion for the lost, um, or is it just a fad or a culture or a fable or a feeling that's folded up into this kind of a general illusion of self-deception that we're good and we're doing it right and we're making God happy when God doesn't even recognize what we're what we're attributing to him as his word. Um, so are we quoting um, some recent version of a passage to endorse what God says or a gospel fashioned to, according to satisfying our itching ears and those who follow another Jesus? You know, the seriousness of this gospel is again brought out so often through the Apostle Paul and the various um, scriptures. Paul says, um, you know, he says um, in Galatians 1, he says, if I come preaching another gospel than the one I first brought to you, um, he says, verse, uh, Galatians 1, 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in grace, the grace of Christ, to a different gospel. Where do you suppose they're getting this different gospel? Because they're going back to mixing things that are not to be in the gospel, watering it down, bringing in their opinions, uh, the angels of light are working overtime to create new counterfeits, new translations, new um, opportunities to bring chaos and confusion. He says, he says um, in verse 6, I marvel again that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Then he goes on to say, if even we or an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel. And how many times have we got new revelations from angels that have started new denominations, new texts, new this, new that. He says, even an angel preaches any other gospel to you than what you've received from us. Let him be accursed. He says, he knew this was going to happen. He knew this was going to come. Of course it's going to come. When you when the devil sees how powerful the real is, he can't let that just go. He's got to do something about it. And so that's what he's he's done. He's tried to create confusion around the word of God. So if you go back to even Acts 15, when there was some there was some legitimate discussion in those days about the Jew, the Gentile, what was the the plan? How were they to incorporate Gentiles into the mix? And that was a legitimate question. Um, what happened there was the the men at Jerusalem, uh, James and Peter and and uh, even Paul came to seek what, what had they had decided in 15 was that a letter was sent to quench the troublemakers, those who were trying to um, instigate a riot against the unity of the church at that time who troubled the minds and souls of those who wanted to follow Christ. And they sent a simple letter and they said, here's what we've come up. This, this is what we want to do since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling to your souls saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good for us to bring an assembly with one accord and send chosen men to you. Uh, and these men have risked their lives in the name of Christ. Therefore, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Number one, that you abstain from things offered to idols. Again, that's going all the way back to the, the temple. You don't want to partake of those idolatrous activities and eat the food offered to these idols, abstain from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. Farewell. There was, it's, the gospel is simple. The, the truth had uh, progressed or been re, develop, uh, de- developed into the place where God showed them that circumcision was a part of the law. It was a sign. It was for a, um, a mark that people apart at that time. But now the mark 
was Jesus Christ, and he fulfilled the law. So circumcision, though still very powerful and precious to the Jews, was not um, mandatory in the Gentiles. And so um, they were able with these, you know, seriously considering the, the spirit of the law, what God had intended to bring some things to pass that were very helpful. So in Acts 20, verse 24, um, we look at uh, what is the purpose of the word of God? Well, we see that it is, first of all, the purpose of the word of God is to declare the whole counsel of God, the grace to testify to the grace of God, to declare the counsel of God, to take cause us to take heed to ourselves. It's a, it's a mirror. It's an examination. It's a time of letting the Holy Spirit look into you and reflect where you're at. Um, the, and then he says in um, Acts twenty twenty nine, Paul again says, I know I'm leaving. And he says, what's going to happen is these savage wolves are going to come in and they're going to, after my departure, and they're going to bring, they're not sparing the flock. Um, men from among yourselves will speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So we're seeing that there's going to be another battle coming up over the words of God, over the intention of God. And nowadays, because of the denominations, because of Calvinism, because of Catholicism, because of the various um, you know, years and years and years of reformations and counter-reformations and trying to bring this thing back on track and whatever, we have um, just a, a myriad of things that uh, are no longer uh, clear, except if you just read them through the Holy Spirit. He says, these wolves are going to come in uh, speaking perverse things. Um, he says, watch, remember, warn. Uh, he says, I commend you to the grace of God. Um, and then Paul goes on to say in Philippians, you know, that Christ is preached. Some preach him through strife and selfish ambition. And he says, but ultimately, he says, I rejoice that no matter what the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Ultimately, the, this keeping the word of God pure becomes God's problem. Um, but we really do need to know the foundational principles of the word of God. Who is Jesus who, what, what is his word? What is his intention? What is the gospel of grace? What is the, you know, the kingdom of God? What are the principles of the kingdom of God? What's important to God? Um, because the devil also interprets the word. He has the legalistic interpretations that, that if people are mixing law and grace, they're going to come back under that judgment, that condemnation, that feeling of guilt, and then he will set them up for a demonic judgment. Um, so it is important to know the Word of God. Um, so let's, anybody want to make a call? We have a few more minutes left, 347-215-8051. How about if we take a minute to break, and we're going to talk about um, uh, a CD that we have available for you, and we'll get right back to it. Okay, so now I'm saved. I'm not living like I used to, but I find myself still sinning. So now I am a saved sinner, Right. But how much can I sin and still be saved? Maybe I've really blown it and lost my salvation. Or maybe I really didn't get saved at all because the more I try to be good, the worse I seem to get. And if I can't be good at being good, maybe I should just forget this whole thing and go back to being good at being bad. All this being saved and living to please God stuff just isn't working for me. Many believers are caught in these age-old struggles. Marjorie Cole has prepared a must-hear CD entitled, If I'm Saved, Why Do I Still Sin? This timely CD takes a clear and close look at the meaning of forgiveness and the futility of trying to be good in order to be saved. Marjorie helps you discover truth from God's Word that will give you the power and freedom to live without the frustration, discouragement, and self-condemnation you may have been going through. To order your copy of If I'm Saved, Why Do I Still Sin? Go to liferecovery.com. Dot com. Again, go to liferecovery.com. Amen. Go to liferecovery.com for a lot of things you might be looking for. We've got CDs, we've got blogs, we've got DVDs, we've got classes coming up. Speaking of classes coming up, we've got one coming up for troubled kids on Saturday. Uh, February 7th in Rogers, Minnesota at the Holiday Inn. Check it out on the website. You can register there. Uh, it's actually free, but we do need to have you register because the space is limited. It's open to grandmas, grandpas, 
uh, mothers and fathers, people who are interested in kids um, and have access to uh, ways to help them. So back to the Bible, back to the Word of God. You know, Jesus, the whole Gospels is full of the stories of healings and deliverances and encouragements and um, just awesome. I mean, does your Bible, does the version that you're reading, I think these are the checklists, does the version that you're, word, that you're reading um, encourage you to lay hands on the sick, to um, preach the gospel, to, to believe in, in what Jesus said, that we can have and experience deliverances and cast out demons um, and heal the sick? Does your version endorse faith to believe for these things and the revelation of Jesus Christ? Does the version that you're reading cleanse you? It says First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. It's the washing of the water of the word. God uses his word to cleanse us. Um, Psalm 119 has many um, uh, references to the Word of God. Uh, it revives our soul. It strengthens us. It keeps us from sinning. Uh, it, it teaches us um, the, the ways of God, His uprightness, His judgments. Um, and He sends His Word. In, the, in Exodus, it talks about He sent His Word and healed them. So the Word of God has is a uh, like I said it's a sharp sword it's able to heal it's able to deliver it's able to give us power over all the power of the enemy it is God's words and what are, you know I want the word of God as the Holy Spirit would impress it into your heart it teaches us um, uh, does the word of God that you read cause you to want to and choose the truth does it cause you to turn your eyes away from looking at worthless things. I think that's quite interesting. Psalm 119, verse 37. Um, there's a lot of verses. Um, Righteous are you, O Lord, you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Um, he wants us to stay clean and pure, t- turning our eyes away from rejecting those things that are worthless. He says in Psalm 119, 113, I hate the double-minded. What that This is not God saying this. This is the psalmist saying this. But when we're double-minded, when we're not sure, uh, when we're hesitant and halting, caught between two opinions, in confusion, none of that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. G- Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is righteousness, peace, and joy. And, of course, we have in um, uh, what God says in Timothy, chapter three, uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, the word of God is a purpose that it's given for instruction. Um, let's read that. Um, let's see here. Whoa. No, that's second Timothy. Sorry. You can look for, they're both good, but this all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So this means that it's inspired by God. It's not like Peter says, we're not following a cunningly devised fable. Um, this is not just a good story to, you know, explain things that aren't explainable. He says, we, this is inspired by God. And is profitable for doctrine. In other words, it's profitable. It's helpful to establish, stabilize, um, set the standard um, for reproof. You know, we can't judge people. We can we can um, uh, discern things. God is the judge, but but He's going to judge through the Word of God. Jesus said, "It is the Word that will judge you." He says, "We're condemned already if we don't know Him." Uh, but it's it's here for us to bring correction, for reproof, for correction, because we don't always have it right. And, you know, we really don't like to be corrected. But if you allow the word of God in the privacy of your own personal life and reading to correct you, it'll it'll bring instruction in righteousness. It'll bring peace. It says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped to every good work. You cannot live any longer on this planet without reading the word of God any longer, any more than you can live on this planet without eating your food. Um, so does the word that you are reading revive your you in God's way? Does it establish God's promises in you and for you? Does it comfort you? Does it bring you hope? Does it give you a cause to hope? Um, does it comfort you in your affliction? Does it give you life? You know, you, when you read the word of God, it just makes everything else, it pulls everything else back into context it, it takes the fear, the panic out of things. It lifts the burden. It allows the Lord to just comfort you, to ease your heart, your soul, to bring you hope and joy. Um, 
does the version that you are reading teach you good judgments and knowledge? Are you growing in the knowledge and admonition of the fear of the Lord? Um, is it a, is it is it bringing delight to you? Does that word of God is it? I mean, do you look forward to reading it? Is it a delight? Is it um, is it your daily food? Does it make you wiser than your enemies? You know, so much of what the devil's trying to do now is create illusion, delusion, confusion, pollution of the word of God, deception, counterfeiting. Um, but whatever version you read, uh, and I really, really encourage, you know, sticking to some of the more standard versions um, rather than these more recent translations. Every translation waters it down more like the NIV calls um, the virgin a young woman, which takes away the immaculate conception or Jesus being, um, you know, born of God or because uh, it could be any woman, a, a healthy young woman who's pregnant. Um, so just various subtle things. They're very subtle and, you know, that's how everything progresses. It's very subtle. They add things very subtly. There's not a sudden change, you know, when they're diluting and polluting our foods, our air, our, our you know, our standards of whatever, ease, e- you know, ease in more of the corruption until it's just so you're familiar with it. It does, you don't notice it anymore. There's no cry against it. There's no outcry. Um but we throw, but when you you throw away those things of God, and you know, um, so many of us are you, we want the the light version. Where I think reading a lot of substitutes for God's word, we're reading books written by men or women. Uh, we're, we're reading daily devotionals. We're reading devotionals that are written in the in the first person as if it's Jesus Christ speaking to you. Um, I do not recommend those. Um, Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can speak to you, to your heart, to your soul. But uh, the angels of light are coming in impersonating Jesus Christ through these devotionals. Um, You don't need that. You're only reading that because you're believing a lie. And the lie is that I can't hear from God myself. I need somebody else. Somebody else knows more than I you can be as ignorant as any of the fishermen that follow Jesus and get just as much out of the word because the Holy Spirit is well able to adapt it to your learning level, your IQ, your understanding, the context of what you understand in your world. He is able to adapt it. That's what's so great about the word of God. It is, it's, it's, it's our life. You know, when we're distressed, it becomes our prayer book. We cry out to the Lord. Um, you know, the psalmist asks, how long, God? How many of us have been in that place? How long, God? Will this go on? You know this uh, this waiting, this this pain, whatever it is. Um, all these things are found in the Word of God. There's admonition, there's encouragement, there's instruction, there's edification. There you know, is it is the Word of God really that tells us the whole story from beginning to end. It is what will. It says when heaven and earth pass away, He said, My Word will not pass away. The word of God is is God's promises to us. It is that he is with us, um, our prayers to him, his response to us. It's all found in the word of God. And if you don't read it, you, you can't. And it's like this. Nobody else can eat your food for you. I mean, you can pick away at a little um, snack. You know, you can light reading. You can, you know, and, and and I'm not saying biographies, autobiographies of great men and women of God aren't inspiring. I'm not saying that. But that is not a substitute for the meat of the word, the truth, the revelation of God's with you himself through his Holy Spirit. That is what makes the difference in our lives. That is what gives us the power, the grace, and the courage to stand. That is the only thing. Believing him, believing his promises, walking out our faith through obedience. Obedience is the demonstration of our faith. When you obey, but if you don't know what to obey, how can you demonstrate your faith? So we're obeying what has been set before us to obey. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. So the version that we're reading revives us in the way it establishes God's promises in us. This is where we are right now. If you're feeling down, discouraged, confused, hopeless, scattered, don't quite know which way to go with your life, it's really go back to the Word. Go back to the Word. And if you've been away from it for a while or if you get sleepy and can't read it, begin to deal with that um, 
as if it were an enemy who's trying to snatch the word of God out of your heart and soul because Jesus actually does tell us about the, the snatcher in the, the parable of the sower in the soil where he said the enemy comes, the Satan comes to snatch the word out of us. And when that's happening and, and there's no seed, then there can be no fruit or harvest because the seed has been snatched. Then you're going to be empty and there is no place for emptiness. There is no place for laziness. There's no place for being unprofitable. There's no call for it. There's no reason for it. Jesus has completed the work. All It's pretty much laid out for us. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. There is so much opportunity right now to do the will of God, to be involved in what God is doing. Uh, and it begins in, in the Bible. It begins with you sitting down, reading your, your, your Bible, and read a version that you're willing to obey. Read the version that you know God endorses. Um, again, I say get away from some of these sloppy translations. They're okay if you want to read them alongside of something, but I, I say get into the solid Word of God just and read it slowly. This is not a race. You don't have to read through the Bible in one year. You don't have to, you know, um, read a certain number of passages every day. If you read three words and it it hits you and you, and you get the revelation. Um, one time I was reading in uh, the story of Bartimaeus and Jesus. I I see the pictures, and that's another thing that's really really nice is if you do a little studying around the time, the the context of the of the 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 topography and the terrain and the culture and, and whatnot of of, the, of Jesus' day. Well, he was walking down the road, and he was actually on his way to Calvary. He was on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. Bartimaeus was standing and sitting, laying, actually, by the roadside begging, which was very common. The beggars would stand or lay there, and when they heard the uh, arriving of the, the feet of the of the crowd that's coming, and usually people traveled in groups, he began to cry out, and they and someone told him it was Jesus coming by, and he began to cry out, almost like embarrassingly loud, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And uh, you can imagine with all of the noise and the clamor and the, and the children making noise and uh, kettles clanging and donkeys moving and feet shuffling and people chit-chatting and, you know, arguing and excited and whatever, Jesus heard this man's cry through all of that clamor. And it says, and Jesus stood still. Whoa. Jesus stood still. This man had gotten Jesus's attention. Those three words, Jesus stood still. That was all I needed for the day. Jesus stopped. He heard. He had compassion. He stopped everything he was doing. He was on his way to the most important event of his human life, which was his own crucifixion. And he stopped for this man because this man got outside of the, the box and just cried out, God, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. And then when and, and, and they brought him to Jesus. Well, actually, they tried to tell him to be quiet. And, and, and but he, Jesus said, bring him to me. They brought him to Jesus. And he says, what do you want? Well, what a dumb question. The guy can't see. What do you suppose he wants? No, it wasn't a dumb question. Jesus wants you to articulate what it is you need, what it is you want. Um, he wants you to put something in. So that's your act of faith. Lord, I, I can't see. Lord, I need to see. Lord, heal my sight. And um, and Jesus healed him. And that was basically, I, as far as I can tell, was maybe the last, but it's the last recorded miracle that we have before Jesus went to the cross. So that was the last chance for Bartimaeus to get his eyesight. And he put all he he put his heart and soul into it. When you need something from the Lord, put your heart and soul into it. And Jesus will stand still and he will lead you. And it's like the word of God is also living. It's like sometimes you read it and it's just what you needed to read. It was just how did you know that, how did God know that that was just your prayer? I would say read it in the morning. If you can't read a whole bunch in the morning because you're running off to this and that, which I know we all try to do, then and by the time the day is over, you know, you don't put gas in the tank. At the end of the day, you put the gas in the tank when you need to go somewhere. But if you can only read it at night, read it at night. Read it as a prayer, a meditation. Uh, go to bed with the last thing that you've read, the last thing in your mind being a little piece of the Word of God. And then meditate on Him. Think upon whatsoever things are pure, lovely, honest, just, and of good report. Do not let anyone steal your hope, your joy, the promise of his life and love because Jesus is coming back. 
He's coming back for those who look for him, who love his appearing. We are in a good place. We really are, even though the, the righteous are being crushed and tested and Satan's throwing everything he can at you. I know enough stories of enough people, and I have seen God's faithfulness in enough situations for me to know that God is faithful and he does not allow the righteous to perish. And when you think you're at the end, you've lost everything. All you've lost is, you know, you all you've lost is the problem. Now the problem has got to go to God. He's going to have to fix it, deal with it. It's not yours. It's his. And, and you got this one, Lord God. Let, let him have your life. Let him carry your life and let him reveal himself through his word and his Holy Spirit. Again, I just encourage you um, to be encouraged to read the Word of God. Let the Word of God give you uh, a new life, the life Jesus died to give you, not the life the church tells you you should have, not the life society says you should have, not the, the American style of life. Let he, Get the Word, get the life God drew up, the plan he wrote for you from the foundation of the world. Are you a Jeremiah? Are you an Isaiah? Are you a Paul? Are you a Peter? Are you the little boy with the five loaves? Who are you? Let the Lord show you who you are and be encouraged. And Father God, we thank you for your word. How how can we live without it? We pray, Lord God, that you protect us in the midst of all this demonic confusion to create so many versions and translations and paraphrases that we don't know what to, to do and where to start. Pick one. Pick one that's solid. I would say the King James, New King James, you know, pick one of those. There's some others out there that are good, too, and I'm just not real familiar with There's some that I wouldn't read. But, Lord, lead them by your Spirit to pick the right one for them and then do it. Just obey it. Let that be the right version, the one that you obey and reverence God. He is the one who spoke these words. He cannot lie. These are his promises. Be encouraged. Call him. Uh, say, Lord, this is what you said. Here's your word right here on black and white. I trust you. You fulfill it. I'm bringing it to you. Present your case, any case you have, through the word of God, back to God, and it will be honored as you rightly divide the holy word of God through the Holy Spirit. So, Father, again, tonight we thank you for the Holy Spirit, and we thank you for the word. We thank you for your divine protection over us. And we know that the enemy would love to kill us, but we know that you are with us. So we're so thankful for your word, and may each one who hears this tonight be renewed in their strength and courage to take on this year the book and read the word of God. Lay down some of those other books and pick up your word, Father. Lord, encourage us with the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we ask these things now in your precious name. Amen. Have a good night, and we will see you soon. 